You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Renee Brack, a screen and media creative and communicator with a passion for eclectic and engaging stories across print, television, film, radio and digital. Renee's YouTube channel has racked up over 1.3 million views, driven by her unique approach to interviews. Renee is a writer, producer, director, interviewer and researcher. She's also a lecturer and seminar moderator, working across higher education and corporate. In this episode, we explore a wide range of topics, reflecting Renee's professional experiences and interests, screenwriting and killer koalas, interviewing technique and the value of a pregnant pause, true crime podcasts and the darker side of the human heart. Renee reflects on her life and career, including her work as a television journalist, which resulted in her playing herself in the year 2000 feature film, Chopper. We also explore Renee's resilience and her upbeat can-do attitude and approach within an ever-changing media landscape. Here's my conversation with Renee Brack. So thanks very much, Renee. It's very nice to see you. It's great to be here, Mark. Yes. Now, um, you're not, not teaching today? Or? I am later on this afternoon, and it's week 12, and everyone's very, very hectic. <laughs> I miss those students. They miss you too. <laughs> <laughs> so what I want to find out is who you are. Where did you come from? You know, What have you been doing the past X years from... From birth until now. From day dot. Just from day dot. All right, I'll give you the the um the very small kind of like pill or capsule version. Um, I grew up in a very rural area and where there was no pub and no police station, so it was a bit of a a bit of a wild west kind of a feel down the south coast of of New South Wales, around Bedalla, Churros, and I've got family, a lot of family for generations down there as well. So um, naturally. Uh, well, parents like mine would uh, send their children away to country boarding schools because that's what um, that's what you did. And apparently, in um, year six, I was a little bit of a gifted student, and so it was decided that I would go away to Goulburn. Boarding school, gifted, gifted, a special gift. Yes, I was writing. um, I'd written a whole book of poetry by the time I was eight. Oh yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I kept tracing pictures of brains and so on out of medical textbooks. So I was quite an avid reader as well. Well, it's so a lifelong passion. Yeah. <laughs> so what? So what was boarding school like? I I never went to a boarding school, so I I've only seen movies or or heard about boarding school. But what was that like? That experience? Well, I'm Generation X, and so I was in boarding school in the seventies, and that was the end of the um, uninspected era, and I. I wouldn't say my experience was great. I got along with the girls very well, but um, there was a lot of brutality in boarding schools and especially in country boarding schools that were pushing Catholicism down our little Catholic throats. So what was, you know, uh, without going into maybe too gory a detail, but what sort of brutality? That's a big word, brutality. Well, you got the cane. Oh, right. So... Yeah, so it was still corporal punishment. Right. Yeah, and I got it across the back once, um, which was terrifying for me because I wasn't hit as a kid. But, you know, the um, the back of my uniform was unzipped and the nun pushed me and then she left the room and I didn't know she was watching. And then when when I started zipping my uniform up, she came back with the stick. Oh, can, can <clears> I ask what, 
what had you done? What have you done to deserve this? What? Yeah, well, I'd been playing. Um, I'd been playing basketball, and then I went inside to have my compulsory shower at exactly five forty, which needed to be wrapped up for dinner by six p.m. And some boys had come to the boarding school to use the basketball court. So myself and a couple of the other girls filled up a tub of water and threw it on them. <laughs> That's, oh, I mean, funny, not funny. Yeah, yeah, but we were in terrible trouble for that. And I was age 15 at the time. So mm. I was a young woman. Right. Yeah. So you didn't stay at boarding school for, um, well, I guess at some point you left and then went on to bigger and better things, higher education university yeah so I came to Sydney um, in about 1981 or two one of those years to go to Macquarie Uni and it was um, it was wonderful to come from a small town where everybody knew your business to being anonymous in a big city and also to be studying something where there was choice and mass communications had just uh, been instituted as a new form of a new area of study and I was very very drawn to that and afters used to be connected to oh, yeah. um, Macquarie North, Uni then. North Ride, yeah. Yeah. And so I was doing film, television and radio in small components to do with that degree, which really um, awakened my desire for screen storytelling. Ah, yes. So then you graduated uh, eventually. We're skipping, skipping <laughs> along here. There's no time for details here. Um, so you, got, you were all kind of, um, you know, skilled up and had your qualification and did you find work immediately? I immediately went on the dole oh, right. so that I could write. And so um, I got published with um, my second piece. The first piece I wrote just got, I took it into Rock Australia magazine, Ram magazine. Rock Australia magazine. Was that um, a local, you know? A national. national yeah, yeah, it yep. was a very, very prestigious um, music paper. And I ended up being the only staff writer for them in their history. But the editor, who was just amazing, he said, um, I can't publish this, Renee, because it's already out of date. But he said, I do like your style, so I'm going to give you an assignment. And so then I started getting paid to write. And the first time I saw my name as a byline, it just put a buzz through me. And Because I'd only ever been interested in writing, because my dad taught me to write when I was three. And so to be paid and published. Yeah. And then out in the world for yeah. other people to look at. Mm. So what, what was that buzz? Like, what did that then kind of, was that a whole new era or a whole new identity? Or, you know, you kind of, this acknowledgement, I am a writer. I went out and started getting other gigs and I was writing um, cover stories for Stiletto magazine. And oh, I remember that magazine. Interviewing people like Paul Weller of um, the, what became the Style Council and uh, doing very odd assignments for Picture magazine, which was horrendously tabloid. <laughs> I remember Picture Magazine as well, yes. Oh, look, there's. I remember um, because I was the roving reporter and the editor said, look, it'd be great um, if you wanted to come in and just see how we work in here. So I rocked on in and the staff writers, there was a, uh, all had to, you weren't allowed to pick your stories. There was a big pile of brown envelopes with nothing written on them <gasps> and you weren't allowed to look well, inside. That's gamification of journalism or something. Yeah. Wow. And you, you had to take the top one off and then you had to write the story based on the editor's brief. So what... Well, you picked one. What, what was in it? I couldn't tell you. Oh. No, because it was so outrageous. And I said, I don't know if I want to write this one. And he said, uh, well, that's the deal. So I did it just for fun. But it was, um, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget it because it was horrendous. 
Yeah, I guess it's almost like a little a, a kind of exercise to to stretch your creative and your resilience or your kind of how nimble are you? You're going to have to think quickly and mm. I don't know. I guess so you decided that that wasn't for you by the sounds of it? Or? Oh, I didn't really want to do the brown envelopes no. because I had my own ideas for stories. Yeah. But way before the whole concept of fake news was even uttered, um, one of the great things, that, uh, we had a lot of journalists from the Australian and so on who were writing under pseudonyms because of the creative factor. So when you opened the brown envelope and the pictures were in there with the brief, you were allowed to create characters, create oh, interview grabs. Right. So it was a creative, yeah. fictional... Narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's interesting. It's an interesting process. Is that a common, or is it a common process in kind of, um, you know, magazines back in the day, or it was just this particular publication? I used? think it was specific to picture magazine. Yeah. Okay. I guess they wanted a sparkle to their stories or something. There must have been an underlying rationale. Well, comedy, satire, absurdity, oh. and so they were meant to be entertainment driven. Okay, that makes sense. Mm. There's a logic. Yeah. So then you you eventually moved into television. Is that you know was that did that happen immediately or was it sort of like a soft transition or you know? Yeah, I mean people have asked me like who want to get into TV. How do I do it and all of that and what was your path? And I went, mine was so accidental because I've just ever done jobs that I find interesting. I've never really had a career path other than I wanted to write, and so. TV came knocking on my door. I was happily making 900 bucks a week, working 9 till 12 on a Friday morning and then writing all my fictional stuff. Probably buying Focaccia with that money or yes. what, a, what else was popular in, in the 90s? <laughs> well, Tropicata Cafe, they would oh, do yes. this toasted Focaccia that was just out of this world. And so you're right, you're spot on there. Um, and so they wanted someone who could write um, tabloid and have a real sense of story who wasn't blonde and didn't have big boobs. And apparently, uh, someone had said to the EP of um, Hard Copy, you should talk to Renee Brack. She's writing that material now. And that was it. That was that would have been flattering or, you know, nice that that sort of, you know, they sought you out of sorts. You, you had the goods. Mm. Yeah, and it was so good. How, how did that kind of play out then, your your time in that role? Was it, was it kind of enjoyable or was it kind of, I don't know, um, Tell us more about that. It was absolutely wonderful because we had to punch out about a anywhere between a five to an eight-minute story every single week, each of the three reporters. And we were bringing in some American content too. And so um, it was hard to find sometimes a really good quality hard copy story every single week. And you'd have the production meetings on a Monday morning where the EP would be there and like want to know what you had. So I started developing this... Um, which turned out to be very fruitful, a way of being able to fill a gap if I didn't have a story. So I'd take an unsolved or a cold case of Australian crime and then re-interview people or the investigating officers and so on and other witnesses in the hope of being able to shed new light on something. Yep. And so with the Atherton bride and her bridesmaid, that was ruled a double murder, uh, no, sorry, a murder-suicide. So I ended up um, getting that case reopened and re-examined. And there was, of course, the um, infamous then Chopper interview, which um, got me 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. So for, for those unenlightened or maybe those non-Australian listeners, I guess he's a, a famous, um, you know, uh, what do you, is he a character? No, he's a celebrity. What is, he's an entity. 
He's a uh-huh. he's a criminal. He's a character. He claimed to um, have committed more crimes than he actually did, because other uh, criminals have uh, have confirmed that with me. But they're not going to come out and say that they did it, because that's the point of trying to get away with crime: is that you don't oh. tell people that you did it. Yeah. So um, so, so he what, was entertaining. So what? How was that sort of? Um, how was he as an interview subject? Well, he hadn't done a TV interview before, and I was his first. And he played up to the cameras, holy hell, because he did have this, you know, pre-internet, preemptive desire to be famous and mm. to be recognised. And so that's why I, I believe he was laying claim to crimes that he hadn't committed. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. I think that happens. That's a phenomenon, yeah. yeah. People, like a, for, for the prestige of it or something like that. Yeah. And so I think if he had have turned his talents to any other industry, he could have been quite a success. So tell us more about how you've, some of your writing, you've written, produced and directed some short films as part of, and, and plays. Could you tell us more about that? Red Handed was a short film that I wrote that was turned into a play that was produced in Sydney and then a producer came along and turned it into a film which has won awards and had an actor nomination for the DOP and won awards around the world. And that was really interesting because I'd written it as a feminist tome um, and an ideological statement about how far women have to go to protect themselves when the law doesn't do that. And this was just predated um, Australia's anti-stalking laws. And then uh, director Tony Tills took it and turned my script into a horror thriller. And it just went gangbusters and found an audience. So that was really interesting. But as a writer too, you need to pull back and let a director... I was wondering that. How, what's that process? Like, Because you've written something as a creative work and then you have to kind of hand it over and somebody else is interpreting it or kind of shaping it. How, what goes on as, as from the creator's perspective? Couldn't tell you. I wasn't part of that process. <laughs> yeah. So I was going to move on and get on to yeah. some other things as okay. well. Yeah, because he just did it and I had as a writer, I'd already just abdicated full responsibility because I'm not a part of that process. And you're fine with that. That's kind of just, you know... With some projects, because there are some projects I'm very attached to. Like Outback Killer Koalas has just um, been a top 15 finalist in the Truant Pictures screenplay competition associated with Animal Logic. And so um, that one I'm very, very connected to. So, yes, I'd love to co-direct it, but I don't know whether I will. So it sounds like we'll look out for that in the near future. Yeah, definitely. Very good. So can we talk a little bit about your teaching and your kind of... Because you've done that more recently. Mm. Um, you know, you've seemed to have you've 20, 20 plus years of it in TV, film, print, digital, writing and producing, but more recently, teaching. So what was that like? I know you're currently teaching. What, what was that transition like or the what's the been the experience so far? I never wanted to have children and I made that decision very young. <clears throat> and so... When I was offered to do a lecture, a two-hour lecture on um, film critical analysis, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, maybe I could do that. And then when it awoke in this need to nurture, and I'm instead of passing on DNA by having children, I'm sort of passing on something else like knowledge and showing people how to learn and research, which has been phenomenal. So I used to make this little joke in the beginning um, that – uh, I've got a celluloid umbilical cord to um, to you, the students, which I'm going to cut at week 13. 
But um, it's been very rewarding because this um, need to nurture is is greatly satisfied by sharing knowledge. Yeah, and I'm assuming you you kind of um, students are producing some interesting work under your tutelage? Yes, I've been thrilled to bits because I do encourage students to think outside the assessment arena and be able to um, think about festivals. I, I think I like the, the, the feel of that because it's quite strategic and it's very practical. Well, when they get their first laurels, it's very, very exciting. It's like babies taking first steps. So now, I know what a laurel is, but for, for our audience, what, what do you mean? What's a laurel? The film laurels that you see at the beginning of films and the ends of films and in trailers that acknowledge. What's the significance of those? No? Don't know? I mean, I do, (laughs) but it's just like it's it's a very visual thing, so it's hard to explain. Like a little award. They've got it like first. It's recognition. It's recognition. Yeah. 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 Which is, I'm sure the students would be bouncing out of their skin with enthusiasm when they get their first one. Your first laurels. Yes. It's it's wonderful. It's an acknowledgement that, you know, you've made something. Hmm. You've got an audience. And then what about, finally, just with this first section, what about um, some of your more recent study? You create, you um, completed a Master of Creative Arts uh, with a focus on documentary and virtual reality. Could you tell us a little bit about that? That's been a very exciting process because um, people may be familiar with the fact that there are templates for screenplay writing and templates for television writing. But there's not really a template for immersive script writing. And for by immersive, I'm talking about virtual reality, 360. So you're, you've come up with like a script template? Is that what you would call it? Or, a, or guidelines or something like that? Well, the research took me, I started looking for it to see what was out there. And there are plenty of storyboards and uh, gaming uh, templates that people can use. But I was looking for a text-based one. And then I came across Ilya Petrides's, uh template that he'd used just for himself and devised himself to be able to show it to funders and crew to be able to realise a virtual reality script. Because when you don't have a screen and you don't have edit points, it changes the way you write. And so I asked his permission to be able to further develop his template and he said yes. So I spent two years of my life crafting and testing something that actually works. And now we're thinking of ways to be able to take it to market. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. got your own yeah, notes but I you decided do. to take mine which yeah, is fine control <laughs> quite possibly <laughs> that was adorable <clears throat> okay now since you're you've interviewed so many people mm. and i mean this is i consider this more of a little conversation rather than an interview but um in the spirit of training resources and you know learning and teaching ongoing uh what do you call that lifelong learning what are some tips or what are some techniques that you can tell us about how, what makes a good interview? What, what would you normally do or what, what have you used in the past that's been successful? Interviewing is probably one of my most favourite things to do because it's this licence to be able to sit in front of a complete stranger and have them give, the, give you a little piece of their soul. And so one of the techniques that I've used in the past, particularly with very suspicious people or people that are quite shy or introverted, is during the mic-up sec. Uh, uh, part of the interview where I'm being mic'd up, they're being mic'd up, ready to record. And so I will sometimes throw out a little um, tidbit about myself 
just to uh, break the ice or to offer something because I'm about to get something from them. Yeah, like kind of build rapport, that type of territory. Yeah. And also, uh, it's very tempting to do. You don't ask a double-barreled question. You just ask the one question and then be quiet. Allow the pregnant pause to happen because people need to think about your question. You know the question. I know the question really well. So I can think of an answer quite quickly. But they may have only heard the question for the first time. And pregnant pauses are so beautiful. They're like, you know, the notes that they say that the jazz musicians don't play that you're listening to just as much as the notes they do. A pregnant pause, when I've um, looked back at someone I'm interviewing, can often mean that they're choked up, that they're about to uh, cry. And sometimes these very raw emotional moments can be incredible to capture. And so I do encourage students when I'm teaching them interviewing techniques, ask your question. And just because it's quiet, don't fill it. Just just stop and be patient. I like I like that very much because it's almost like an, an, uh, something that's not there is the powerful thing. Yeah. And then you're kind of like, um, well, you're kind of organizing yourself to create that or, you know, you're kind of acknowledging that as an, as an valuable element yeah. of kind of the person. And that, I guess the, the kind of concept of communicating and they are communicating a lot by, by their lack of response. And yeah, I guess that's kind of easily dissolved if you constantly rush in to fill the space with another question. Yeah, because we do tend to do that as human beings, but as interviewers, we just need to control it a little bit more. And also too, some warm up questions that are very good to ask is not being too personal with the opening questions, but making sure that you have a, you have a couple of questions that are about the third person. For example, if I was interviewing you, Mark. <gasps> I'll be asking the questions, Renee. Yes. I could start with um, something along the lines of, could you tell me something about your daily work that you wish people knew? And so then it's almost a third person. Like, I wish people knew how hard this was or I wish people appreciated this. And then people can speak a lot more easily and you save the intense philosophical questions for the end when the rapport is built. Oh, yeah. No, that's I, I like that too. like the kind of slow build so that they can, yeah, they can kind of work up to it. Mm. It might be too confronting otherwise. Yeah. Well, I, I plan to uh, reach a philosophical height towards <laughs> the end of this um, session. So I will look forward to that one. Now, you were in a feature film playing yourself, which not everyone in the world would have experienced. That's quite a... I would think that's a, a reasonably unique... Um, sort of thing to happen to someone. So what, can you give us a bit more of the background and, and what was, oh, oh, I nearly gave you a double barrel. Could you give us some background on that? When director Andrew Dominic and producer Michelle Bennett were going to make the film about Chopper, um, she approached me and thought it could be interesting for the audience to have the person that first broke the story because it went you know, they didn't have the word viral back in the early 90s, but it went viral. And it, it, rather than get an actress to play my part, they thought it would be a nice tie-in for the audience for the um, short doco that I made to um, have me in the role. The funny thing was is that I was on set um, with Eric Banner and had a good old yarn with him about putting on weight because most people think that that would be a lot of fun to do, to be able to eat whatever you want. And he gave me this great little insight about how... Eating isn't as fun when you have to do it. 
So you mm. never have that opportunity to get hungry, which means you never have the opportunity oh, right. to get satisfied. And I thought, wow. isn't that interesting? I like that a lot. It's yeah. sort of like the territory. It's what is the con- con- concept even of craving mm. or desire for something. And if you've cheated out of that, then what is life? Or, you know, something- well, you don't have the satisfaction yeah. at the end. It's like when you go to a restaurant and if you're not very hungry, nothing on the menu appeals. Yeah. But if you're starving, you just want to order the lot. That's why they <laughs> say don't get, do your grocery shopping while you're hungry. While you're hungry because everything looks good and you'll put it in the trolley. <laughs> but also I found too, um, it was at the end of the day, um, Andrew Dominic had come up and said, look, Eric's been calling you Renee because the character's name was Martine. And he said, how do you feel about that? And I went, oh, look, I'm not very good at, I'm not an actress anyway. I've, you know, I'm only good at being me. And even then I'm not that good. But the funny thing was in a test screening and I was with my brother and he said, what's it like seeing yourself up on a big screen? And I said, well, it's, it's okay. But the horrible thing that I'm finding is that when, you know, you're playing yourself and doing it badly because I'm I'm not a very good actress. Yeah. Like it's kind of, um. (laughs) It's uh, it's an interesting sort of situation because there's I guess, what the concept of authenticity or yeah. you know, you'd think you would be able to play yourself yeah with with you know one hundred percent but then I guess it's in a scripted scenario or you know mm. there's other things going on so I can only imagine you did a convincing enough role you weren't cut from the final film you know you you convinced the audience. Yeah, and I think too that um, I was able to be myself, but I certainly wasn't um, in line for any acting awards, mm. I can tell you. Mm. So this is a podcast and, you, you know, this whole podcast phenomenon has been on a slow build for the last, whatever, year, 20 years or whatever it's been. Um, can you tell us about some of the podcasts that you like or will you listen to or, you know, ones that you found intriguing? I'm absolutely crackers for Ear Hustle on Radiotopia. Okay. That's um, inside, or it was inside, but it's changed now, um, San Quentin Prison. And the interview material and the snippets and the topics um, is absolutely phenomenal. And like a lot of people in the world now too, I'm absolutely gobbling up um, true crime. Yeah. Why, why do you think that true crime podcast thing is so popular? Well, I can only yeah, speak, uh, speak for myself, but um, I like, like when I'm scripting characters, I like exploring the beautiful, compassionate, generous side of humanity, but also too um, the very dark heart because I think the yin and yang thing is very real in all of us, just in different proportions or percentages. And yes. so I like seeing seeing that explored and I think I'm fascinated with that inhumanity and what makes some people able to be very dark and malicious and I can't be. Mm. Um, what? Yeah, so it's, I'm just very fascinated with the human psyche with regard to good and evil. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of these ideas are then further explored in, say, works of fiction because they might help an audience to engage with some of these darker sides. Now, I have a little... I've got a list of some of the films that you like... Um, can you talk on, you know, why are they your favourites or, you know, we've got uh, right up front, we've got Diabolique. 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 <laughs> I didn't, um, I didn't pronounce that very well. I, I watched that only about a month ago because it was in a Stephen King book on, um, Dan- Dance Macabre. I think it was like all the, all of Stephen King's favourite horror films. 
And that was one of them. And I thought, oh, I'm going to watch it. And, and then I watched the remake as well, that 80s, 90s remake. Anyway, enough about me talking. Can you, can you tell us more about that, that film and some of the others that you like? Well, Diabolique is wonderful because it's um, one of the better Sharon Stone films. And it's, it does explore that uh, good and evil and has incredible twists about who's really the evil character and who's not. And it's quite surprising. So I love a good twist. And Dawn of the Dead, George Romero's um, material, has always appealed to me because um, as I was growing up and I snuck into the rated R Dawn of the Dead film, probably in the what, late 80s, 70s maybe, and I saw what he could predict and he predicted the rise of the mall where people would walk zombie-like on the weekend to spend their hard-earned cash on stuff they don't even need. Oh, yeah. And that We're turned still out, going strong with that one. Yeah, well, it turned out to be predictive mm. of human behaviour. So I was very fascinated with that as well. And so what, what are some other films, possibly even ones that are not so horrific, you know? What, what sort of territory do you like to explore? Well, again, too, like... Um, Finding out and studying and delving into how people are their own worst enemies and how our own little foibles and negative traits are the things that trip us up, yet um, humanity, generally speaking, is, is quite happy to blame other people for what's wrong in their lives. But I think of a film like um, The Remains of the Day with Anthony Hopkins and Emma uh, Thompson and how difficult it is for him because of his class and station in life to express love for somebody and the chance of missing out on a great heartfelt opportunity because of structure, because the head is ruling the heart. And so I find that um, really interesting and fascinating. You're listening to Perspectives in Perryville. So, Renee, you seem very well adapted to change, especially in your career. I mean, is there is this about an innate attribute that, that you have, e.g. resilience, or, I don't know, do you have an, an, a strong underpinning drive, or, you know, what's, what's going on with all... I mean, there's lots of change in the world. People have to reinvent themselves or adapt. Some people are not well-equipped. So tell us more about that, that territory. Oh, I think you know, people in the world can hate change. They can be very unresponsive to change. They can change only if they're forced into it. I'm the opposite of that. I can't walk the same way to a shop, to the shops where I buy my food. I have to vary it up all the time and I can't walk the same way home that I walk there. The easiest way to drive me insane would be to put me in prison and just have me do the same thing day in and day out. It does my head in. So I need variety. I need change all the time, even when it comes drive to driving. Can't drive the same way mm. to places that I go all the time. So you, you really like the kind of diversity and, you know, new experiences and new things. That's a kind of a positive by the sounds of it. Yeah, definitely. And I think it probably came from we moved around a lot when I was growing up 
and instead of hating change, because I'm, I'm not an extrovert, I'm an introvert. Actually, I'm an omnivert, which is someone <laughs> who's an introvert who learns extrovert behaviour in order to cope. Oh, wow. Yeah, I wrote an article about it for the, for, the new, for the New Daily and got so many responses from people going, oh, my God, that's what I did. This is me. And so change for me... Um, it was like when I broke up my when I broke up my first relationship, and I remember the metaphor. I felt like I'd opened a window and got a breath of fresh air, and that has stayed with me all my life. Yeah, so it was like a quite a positive um, kind of aftermath of of a kind of seemingly kind of not a good thing, an end of a relationship. But it's kind of for you, it was uh, a positive experience. I love ending relationships. I had struggled to stay in them. <laughs> you know, it's that daily grind. And this is, again, um, harking back to change, mm. is um, when, when decisions would or questions would be asked, what do you want for dinner? I don't know. What do you want? Do you want Italian? No. How about Thai? Oh, maybe. And I can only have that conversation oh, about God. twice and then I'm done. So you've so evoked <laughs> a certain tedium that's, you know, I'm sure people will recognise and so what about some of the other aspects of your life that, that you've had to, you know, bounce back from or travel through? Well, it's always interesting when you start noticing um, some grey hair. And uh, I had a whole whammy of, you know, embracing that ageing process in myself all in a 12-month period. My father died. I'd had a long-term job, which I never intended to be long-term, but because it kept changing within the role, we did six different shows when I was at Movie Network Channels for 12 years. And then the parent companies, um, MGM, Disney and Warner Brothers, and there was a couple more, had decided to disband because they were just starting to, in the year 2012, just starting to do the vertical integration that we are now seeing as Disney+. Plus. I so see. They didn't want to have an amalgamated... Um, entity in Australia anymore and so my family my work family was being broken up and that happened in the same year so I had grey hair <laughs> um, losing the long-term um, working relationship my own personal relationship had broken up and so it was a lot happening at once and looking back on it I'm so glad it all happened at the same time. So what sort of impact did that have like in the immediate day-to-day -day kind of um, you know situation? Well, well, you become quite neurotic and eccentric on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't really know if I want to... No, we don't need to know all <laughs> the detail. That, I guess that's <laughs> a kind of reasonably, you know, common response. But then there must have been a long-term sort of, you know... Well, how did you get, get out of that? Or what did you do to sort of keep moving? I just kept doing uh, new things. I would do anything that um, captured my imagination. You know, like when I was invited by... Um, SBS News Online to write an obituary about Chopper that led to a whole lot of other op-ed pieces that were really interesting and I could pick and choose my own topics. So that was really good. Um, I ended up being invited to do the keynote speech for the 2015 um, SAE graduation, which also led to then more opportunities to be uh, teaching, lecturing and conducting workshops in film and documentary, which um, is of enormous appeal to me. So what do you think of this concept of multitasking? You know, this is sort of related, I guess, to, to being resilient to change. Do you, do you multitask? 
I've done it because um, I grew up in an era where we were told that women could multitask. And so I bought into that ridiculous notion for quite some time. Oh, so it's not such a good thing because people use no. that phrase all the time, multitask. We only multitask because we have to. Mm. The single focus task is what gets stuff done because you focus all your effort on meeting a certain deadline. And mothers have often multitasked because they've got this happening, this happening, this happening, and they're looking after more usually more than one person. And that wasn't really relevant to me. And uh, I've often been a little bit um, angry that um, men were allowed this joyful um, position of single tasking and women had to multitask. It's like, I'm not your juggler. That's not what I find is a productive way to work. In saying that, I still multitask though because I'm so, there's so many things I want to do that um, I do try and do as many of them as possible. Mm. So would you have, like you seem, you seem like a quite a driven person. You've got, you like to get stuff done, you know. You kind of, um, you know, even back to the, the article that you wrote the first time you saw your name in print, that sort of thing. So what have you figured out what your number one driver is? Well, you know, where are you where are you kind of um what you want to achieve? Um probably not so much achieve. Uh I just do what feels good and interests me in that moment. You know, when I'd written um Outback Killer Koalas, uh I knew I wanted it to be made into a film, but I also knew that the rated R content that was in it wasn't necessarily um, at a good time for that market. Then Deadpool came out. Mm. And so there became more of a market for it. And now that we've just seen the GoFundMe page for the Port Macquarie Koala Hospital, um, they asked for 25000 and got $1.8 million in a month. Wow. Making it the biggest GoFundMe fundraiser and fastest in history. Are they the, the koalas that have been injured in the yeah. recent bushfires? Yeah. And so now I'm all vibed up to get this film made because the time is, is now right. So I don't really have long-term goals. I never have. And mm. I've never had a career plan or a path. I literally go from thing to thing as it interests me, which sounds really vague, but it's not. I'm Generation X. We're called the lost generation for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> I think writing is still um, my first great love and probably because my dad taught me to write when I was three before I went to school. And when I finished uni, my first degree, I thought all I wanted to do was write. And even though I do love a lot of screen and immersive type um, work, I really, really still love writing. And so one of the greatest compliments that um, my writing gets, and I never get sick of hearing it, is when somebody will say to me, I've never looked at it like that before. And I've thought... My job is done. <laughs> that really, really makes my heart sing. In this episode, I chatted with Renee Brack, a screen and media creative and communicator. You can find more information about this episode, including links to Renee's website, in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.